welcome and thank you for tuning in for another episode of the Learning Revolution podcast. Learning Revolution is the podcast for people who want to grow a successful education, training, or lifelong learning business. I am your host, Jeff Cobb, and I am very excited in this episode to be talking with George Siemens. George is one of the leading thinkers when it comes to how technology is impacting learning and education. Um, One of the areas that he's become known for, along with his collaborator, Stephen Downs, is massive open online courses, or MOOCs, as they've come to be called. You may have noticed that MOOCs have become quite trendy lately. MIT and Harvard are among the well-known institutions that have gotten into the MOOC game. Uh, And there are also startups like Udacity and Coursera uh, that are grabbing a lot of attention. In fact, the New York Times even called this the year of the MOOC. I actually conducted this interview several months ago as I was writing Leading the Learning Revolution. I knew MOOCs were an emerging phenomenon that I wanted to be sure to cover in the book, but I really had no idea how popular they were about to become. In any case, I talked with George about the massive online course phenomenon, uh, including what kind of business models might emerge for them. We also discussed the challenges of learning in our high-speed, hyper-connected world and highlight some of the trends that George finds most exciting. George is extremely bright and articulate, so I think you're going to enjoy this conversation immensely. Be sure to also check out the show notes for this episode at learningrevolution.net slash episode six. And there you'll be able to get links to all of the resources that are mentioned in the podcast, plus many more. Now, let's get on with the interview. Well, today I am with George Siemens, who, uh, George, I think in your official capacity, you are the president of Complexive Systems, which is a a research lab focused on integrated learning structures, and I know you're also affiliated with Athabasca University, but really, I just tend to think of you as one of those people who is pervasively out there as a thought leader uh, around learning, technology, how things fit together in this hyper-connected world we now live and work in. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be talking with you today. Thanks so much for, for making the time and, and, and welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Well, it's certainly a pleasure to chat. And, uh, you know, when you get these kinds of conversations around changes in education globally and uh, how training and development is being impacted, you really get a sense that it's a conversation that's not happening in sort of in just one area. It's very much a global conversation with uh, folks from different countries and different parts of the world contributing to how things are playing out. So it's a pleasure to chat. Well, thanks so much. And and, and actually, that that leads well into one one of the first things I wanted to ask about, um, and you know, I was recently uh, re-listening to a, a TEDx talk that you did a, a couple of years ago, um, and there was a, a, a lot of uh, of what you said in there resonated. But um, for, for some reason, one short snippet jumped out at me. You said at one point, "When we learn transparently, we become teachers," and I was wondering if I could get you to, to, to comment on that and, and, you know, how you view that notion of, of transparent learning and the idea that, you know, we all have the ability to be both learners and teachers in, in the world we're now living in. Sure. Well, you know, I think it really was based, it was a comment that was based more just on my own experiences. And that's just being, you know, someone who's been fairly active in different online settings, uh, you know, started blogging, I guess would be about 11 years ago now and, and still continue uh, quite actively to do that. But it was just a way in which, as I saw other individuals sharing what they were learning, 
and not necessarily sharing what they knew. I mean, the emphasis really was on sharing what people were learning. And you go through the stage that we had where all of a sudden in, uh, you know, about 2004, heading into 2005, there was a fair bit of uh, interest or you know, a lot of the ideas that we'd been playing about for, around with for about five years with a group of, at that point, I'm not sure if they were called edu bloggers, but it was a group of uh, individuals who were just sharing ideas and concepts that they were encountering and how they were seeing the world fit together with new tools and network technologies. And so it was around 2005 or so where Web 2.0 started to become a term that was gaining attention. And I think today that sort of morphed into, into the term social media. But at that point, it, it was really a group of us who were seeing in different ways, bits and pieces, what was happening around the technology space and how that was going to impact what we were doing either in our classrooms or in our training rooms or just in, in our own personal learning. So I made the statement that you know when you learn transparently, you're teaching others. Uh, what I was basically referring to was my own experience as others were sharing how they were coming to see bits and pieces of the world fit together. And you know, someone would come across a new tool or a new technology and uh, would share what they were doing with it. I was able to learn from those uh, experiences. And so rather than having to necessarily directly go through that particular approach, I was able to just get a sense of uh, what was going on uh, through through those kinds of interactions. So anyway, it was, it was, um, it was that experience of recognizing that, you know, quite often in education, we have this assumption that, you know, people who are familiar with the topic or people who are uh, very well informed in the topic are the ones who should teach others. And obviously, there's certainly a degree of merit to that. But a bit of the challenge comes in. And this is where we were at in, in uh, you know, in 2000, to many areas still are. But, you know, we didn't really know what to make of these distributed uh, networked social technologies. Uh, we didn't know what the role was going to be with these in education and so what you end up having was this fairly large network of people uh, just sort of sharing their bits and pieces and others could connect and make sense of it uh, by observing what was happening and then contribute how they saw what was happening and the impact of that. And then that in turn would serve as a source of of uh, information or knowledge for someone else to take on and build. So it was really that, that experience. And I think that, that in influenced my thinking on that. But I think as importantly – is the recognition that that uncertainty and unsettledness and ambiguity now defines, I think, a growing number of fields in society for, for a variety of reasons, whether it's advances in technology or globalization or whatever else it is. We've really seen a transition where what used to once be seen as a fairly stable knowledge domain ends up becoming uh, you know, more fluid and it changes quickly. And the, the best way to make sense of those changes is by being connected to others and by engaging in dialogue around what those changes mean. Right, right, and I, and I think you know probably part of what um, made that particular passage jump out at me is I knew in, in the back of my mind one of the things I wanted to, to talk to you about was uh, the the effort you launched with Stephen Downs, and I believe in two thousand and eight was the, the your first um, uh, foray into what came to be called the massive open online course or MOOC. Uh, you did connectivism and, and connected knowledge, and to me that seemed like just you know, the whole idea of learning transparently and, and, and people helping to, to teach each other writ large. Um, what, what made you decide, you know, when, when you launched that, uh, that, that initial effort that it was the time to do that, that, that the, the stars were uh, aligned? And, and what do you think made it, 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 was, it seemed very successful from what I could see. What do you think made it successful? 
Sure, I'll try and tackle you know those uh, those various elements in the in the questionnaire uh, sort of in order. But I give you a little bit of background. Now, I had done in two thousand six and two thousand and seven, and certainly was not the first. There were many others that were starting to run a series of what you call online conferences, and these conferences could be something as simple as uh, you know a lecture followed you know done by a podcast in at least in in late nineties, but a lecture done by a you know, we wouldn't call it a podcast, but basically an online audio file. Or, uh, and then there'd be some discussion either in a threaded forum or in Yahoo groups or something that would uh, build out or flesh out those ideas. So it's like anything else. When you have something that uh, could potentially be classified as an innovation, uh, you really see there's a large, typically at least, there's a long history before it gets to the point where that innovation, if you sure. so to speak, Right. sort of comes together. And so we were running these online conferences. Uh, I was at the University of Manitoba at the time, and in our department, we held a series of events uh, on, uh, you know, the future of education and similar kinds of uh, experiences. And so it was in, in the fall of 2008, I was developing a program at the university called the Certificate in Emerging Technologies for Learning. And uh, sort of the uh, flagship course in that program was this course on connectivism and connective knowledge. And so as I was putting it together, uh, I approached Stephen Down. And I said, you know, what if we just do this all online instead of taking the traditional, you know, you teach a group of 20 or 30 students kind of a model. Why don't we just open it up and let anyone who's interested sort of pop in and pop out as they were motivated to. And uh, he expressed interest. And so we basically actually modeled it almost exclusively on the online conferences that I had done in the past, uh, which was, uh, you know, discussion sessions we had a moodle forum set up uh, we had uh, we used uh, illuminate for live presentations and then we ended up uh, with uh, Stephen runs a daily email newsletter on things that relate to e-learning and other areas uh, education technology and so we use that particular form uh, to uh, communicate the um, content uh, that we would be sharing on a daily basis so with the course being fragmented we ended up having to find ways to tie it together. So traditionally, if you come into a university course, the the instructor, the instructional designer, uh, they've pulled together the content in such a way that essentially they're just communicating it to you. And we wanted to emphasize distributed network knowledge where people are actively involved in forming their networks and uh, also taking time to... create artifacts that they would then communicate with others. Again, this notion of transparency of learning as a teaching mechanism. And so when, when this was uh, the structure was pulled together, we used some of the software Stephen had developed, and we used the model that I had used with open online uh, conferences in the past, and it just seemed to work. And, and uh, you know, what was the particular reason for why did it uh, capture a, a bit of interest? I, I think it's like a lot of things. Sometimes you get this uh, this sense that you know there's really something novel happening. But, uh, you know, when you pull back a little bit and you realize that, oh, you know, these things have, have been going on for, uh, uh, you know, for a decade or more. And what, what's really novel isn't necessarily the, any one element. It's just how these things were pulled together. So at that stage, you know, bandwidth was much better than it had been in early 2000. And so the software for holding live sections and lectures was developed. Uh, there was also... Uh, increased degree of skill in in many education settings where faculty were more comfortable blogging and participating in open settings. And so all of these things sort of came together with the skill of faculty being at a higher level, with the technologies being a little more developed. There was a general increased consciousness in educational 
settings at least around different pedagogical approaches and the potential role that uh, technology in the online environment might have. So I think those things all sort of came together and, uh, you know, it's one of those, you know, out of a thousand experiments, if you're lucky to have 10 that work, I guess that's a pretty good success rate. And it's just happened to be one of those that seemed to take off uh, and gain attention. And, you know, since then, been a variety of systems that have adopted it in different ways. Yeah, yeah. And and you mentioned in your comments there, and and I've, you know, heard you uh, speak to it before, this idea of fragmentation, you know, and so you, in in something like a a MOOC, a a massive experience like that, you obviously provided some structure to it, but it's not the same structure you get when there's an expert standing in front of the room who's, you know, really bullet pointed out what's going to be delivered uh, during a session. I mean, what were some of the key strategies for kind of bringing things back together and in, 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 in helping people focus and, and walk away um, with some sort of concrete idea of what they've gotten out of the experience. Yeah, that, that's, I mean, that, that really is the heart of it. And it's, it's a question that's certainly broader than education. It's a question that relates to society. It relates to government, business. Um, and then really the big issue there is in a Society where you have high costs to create and to share information, let's say in the form of television broadcasting or radio broadcasting or even creating and and, uh, writing a book, I mean, printing press, the newspaper. So in a society where you have high costs of information, it becomes quite important that you become frugal in uh, your use of those resources. And so you become frugal by putting a lot of effort into making sure that your content pieces are all nicely set up and established, that you've tried to remove all the things that you feel are irrelevant. So your course structure is, is very well planned, and typically the content that's included uh, is, uh, is structured based on what you think is important in that field. Now, the difficulty with that, though, is that contexts are different. You know, different people around the world have different areas of interest, and knowledge levels of individuals are different. So if somebody's, let's say, spent five years working in industry, and then they decide to go back and, let's say, do a master's, or they've been in, yeah, you know, in the field of, uh, been employed for 20 years, and all of a sudden there's a reskilling in their field, and they go back, or they're laid off. So the, the knowledge level of folks is very different in these kinds of courses, and these kinds of settings. So this assumption that we can take a course, and reduce it to an artifact that captures what's important for all students, it becomes quite absurd. Uh, we, we don't tolerate that anymore in most of our areas of life, our information collecting uh, approaches. So we don't just read a newspaper or watch a newscast to stay informed. Chances are a good portion of uh, people, at least certainly in my case, I spend time you know, throughout the day tracking interesting stories online. It might be through uh, Twitter or through Facebook or through LinkedIn or it might be through Google Alerts or I might visit different news sites and, uh, you know, YouTube and whatever else. So instead of getting this packaged view of what's important to learn, which is the traditional education system, when people don't have high expenses to create and to share information elements, then suddenly you have this explosion of content. Now, the problem is not all that content is equal and not all that content is is equally important for an end user to master. So in order to begin to make sense of that that fragmented content with different voices, increased amount of garbage in, in mixing with the good stuff, you begin to develop both technical and social systems to make sense of it. And some of the social systems we were already quite experienced with. Um, and uh, the the chance that uh, we have a better sense of of uh, what's going on 
uh, requires that we filter the conversation. We begin to form people that we trust because we know how they think. And so socially, we're quite adept at that, and we've done it for a long period of time. The technical systems are still being developed, but the pieces are coming into play quite rapidly. And we see this with recommender systems through YouTube or through Amazon. We see this through uh, you know, social filtering that has a technical basis, so crowd filtering that's network-driven, uh, which we can just do on a larger scale online than we can do in person. So these kinds of techniques, we were at the early stages of it. So what we did was we, we would aggregate all the blog posts for people who sign up and submit their blog posts. We would aggregate them and we'd run just a very simple uh, natural language uh, filter against it. So if it included the course tag, it would be pulled in and included in the daily uh, email. But we also emphasize strongly that learners begin to own their own filtering, so they don't rely us to do their filtering. So we had folks that would, at that point would play around with page flakes, would uh, use different tags, let's say on, uh, on Twitter, which was still quite young at, in 2008. But uh, we were starting to see people build their own methods and they would form smaller groups. So somebody would say, you know, geographically, I'm based in Spain or I'm based in Brazil or someone would say, well, I'm a, you know, a French speaking uh, student, anyone else interested, they would form small sub networks. And I think this is a critical element of sense making and a critical element of dealing with fragmentation is that people would pull these elements together and then they would basically wait or, or uh, determine what was relevant to them based on these sub-networks, whether they were driven by geography or whether they were driven by, by interest or country or language or culture. Uh, so, so that was a particular outcome that, that uh, was possible, again, because these things were happening online and they were happening openly. There was a degree of discoverability to identities and to content that was being shared. Now, today, though, fortunately, you know, in 2012, it's only four years later, but uh, the, the systems for tying together distributed conversations continue to get much better and there's different tools uh, that are being developed and I'm sure we'll start to see more and more of those develop as we go forward but we have LMS systems that now include import options for, for blogs and external uh, files. We continue to have the, the use of uh, different APIs allow data to flow from one system to another reasonably well. So the short view is that when you begin to recreate a coherence from a fragmented space you apply the intelligence at the point of the connection the connection forming and that's why there's a fairly broad open mindset around if we're sharing this publicly we need to find better ways to stitch the important pieces together through social means which we're fairly capable of but increasingly through technical means which we're still at a fairly young stage on and now i mean a lot of the the onus for that though is on the learner and you know when I when I think about the the, the world that um, that I've worked in you know for for more than a decade now kind of the traditional continuing education and professional development that that tends to be modeled on what we all experienced as kids you know you show up in a classroom there's a teacher standing in front of the classroom you receive your knowledge from that person you know maybe you take some notes and and you go away and, and hopefully you've absorbed something um, but now. You know the the the, the possibilities uh, for finding knowledge in in these fragmented ways you're talking about are really endless. Uh, you know, um, I mean, what's your view of kind of the the average adult these days uh, who's you know maybe in the working world or, or maybe they're just you know doing it for their own personal enrichment and 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 pleasure? How well prepared are they to kind of take advantage of the the, the tools to do the kind of you know filtering you're talking about to to, to help? make meaning basically 
there's a few things that are, are uh, limiting factors. Uh, on the one hand, uh, I think human beings are naturally uh, meaning makers. We try to, you know, see how pieces in the world connect and we explore. And, uh, you know, as Pirelli has stated, I mean, this is a concept of information foraging. You know, we, we treat information almost like we treat food biologically. So it is something that we pursue and it is something that we try to apprehend and we, we, we categorize, we connect pieces. I mean, so that's just, that's, you know, human attributes that have sort of long informed the activities we've been involved in. So so that itself is not new. Uh, trying to form coherence out of fragmentation is hardly a new human activity driven by the online environment. Right. What is new, though, is that the flow of information is at a pace that we can't cognitively handle anymore and and probably haven't been able to for a century or more. But certainly today it's very pronounced. So that means that these methods that we've used in the past uh, simply don't work as well. And so as a result of that, even though we are skilled sense makers, uh, what we start to look at today is alternative means of doing that. And, and so while we're socially capable of sense making, very capable of it, uh, it's the scale that throws us for a loop. And that's where, to get to your capacity question, that's where we do face some challenges because individuals have to alter some of their expectations. And you don't, for example, in an open online course, one of the first things we find is that students are completely overwhelmed because they're trying to, uh, you know, read everything. They're treating it like a traditional course where someone has created a bounded structure around it and they have to read everything. So in this case, we're, we're we, a big part of the initial uh, stage of the course is to let learners know that you can't read everything. You need to develop, and, and our tr- interest was to create an environment that forced learners to reevaluate their information habits. So you can't read everything. You can't comment on everything. You can't track all the conversations. What you do instead is you you skim. You find the bits and pieces that are relevant to you. You begin to form, as I mentioned earlier, sub-networks or systems that you have control of that you're able to personalize and that's the process that you use to to build the the capacity there now the difficulty though is exactly like you're referencing i mean these are skills that not everyone has in fact almost all learners that we've had in the first sequence of courses and we've run probably about a dozen open courses now it's almost we can track the process you know what's going to happen the first two weeks and the conversation is almost identical as we're trying to let learners know you know you can't master all this all of this you have to be selective in your reading you have to learn how to extract important elements you have to connect to networks social networks to make sense of it you have to rely on technical systems to uh, you know archive and make sense of the important information and the list goes on so with that particular approach uh, there's a sense in which the um, learners themselves are developing competence by going through the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a competence that exists right now, I think, in many instances, even though in different spaces outside of learning, we live that way. You know, somebody who's in a work setting, that's constantly what you're doing. You're trying to pull together what's important and decide what's relevant and what's not. The second element, I'll just briefly on this, is that the technical tools are not at a very well-developed level yet. You know, even when we try and use tools that say cloud for a brief moment had a fair bit of popularity and perhaps it still does, I haven't tracked it lately, um, is that uh, these systems are um, 
not developed sufficiently yet so that we can uh, use them extensively. You know, we do have system level recommenders with Google and uh, with uh, Amazon and really any online retailer or any online service, social recommender systems through LinkedIn and otherwise. But generally, we don't have these tools available for individuals to control themselves. And so that's, I think, one of the big things that has to happen is that uh, we just need better technologies on an individual level. Right, right. Now, one question I you know have to ask before we wrap up because I'm you know really uh, addressing an audience that's in the business of, of education. So this is you know this is how they make their money. Basically, this is how they make their living. When you look at something like a, a, a MOOC, um, I mean, obviously you've got open in the equation there. Uh, but do you see good revenue models that, that go along with uh, something like the MOOC as a as a learning model? Well, I, I haven't seen yet. I certainly have no doubt that they'll develop. Uh, you look at what was, and really the point is where does the where's the revenue point? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so if you look at let's say Google for example, I mean their revenue point ended up being advertising, and there may be ways in which certain companies will find MOOCs are are an opportunity to educate their customers, or you might have a marketing and a PR piece. So you know you give away a course for free, if you will. You know you, I could certainly see companies, uh, you know, let's say Mac, uh, you know, Apple or other illustrations where you have a tool or a technology that you want others to buy. And so you're giving the learning away as a means of connecting with potential customers. But if there's a company that wants to, let's say, be a pure MOOC company where they're making their money, their revenue from the courses that they're teaching, uh, I don't know if there's a revenue model yet. I mean, there certainly isn't one that I'm aware of, but I can certainly imagine if you've got, let's say, Udacity, where you've got, you know, 10,000 students in a course, uh, and if each of them were to pay $10, uh, it's the scale that can significantly ramp things up. However, at, at this point, I think we're quite accustomed to not paying for content online, and just like newspapers are having trouble convincing end users to pay for that content. I think we're also going to see a fair bit of trouble on the part of uh, companies trying to use open online courses as a means of generating revenue. Now, that doesn't mean it won't exist because we have seen blogging syndicates, if you will, that have come together and have have given good revenue opportunities. So it's really the issue is where's the economic value point? Will people still pay directly for content? Uh, will they pay for the teaching? So you might have the content for free, but if you want educator feedback uh, and personalized uh, contact time with the educator, you pay for that. Will they pay for accreditation? Mm-hmm. You know, so those questions are up in the air right now. But no doubt, there, if you want something to grow, there typically needs to be a revenue point, a way by which someone can invest effort and receive some uh, financial results back. So I imagine that'll develop going forward. Right, right. Well, it'd be interesting to see what happens with that in the, in the next couple of years uh, and on out. Well, maybe just to, to wrap things up, um, I, I always like to ask someone like yourself who's so immersed in uh, emerging trends, um, both from the learning perspective and from the technology perspective. Um, I mean, right now, what are you really excited about? 
Well, technologically, there's a few things. I, I've, I've uh, definitely in the last uh, three years, I've shifted quite significantly into uh, data and analytics in the learning process. Uh, so that's a, a big area of interest for me, just because it is it's such a an underpinning component in everything that we do. And I do think data and analytics will dramatically alter how we understand teaching and learning. They'll alter how we function as organizations as we get better insight in how we need to allocate resources, financial and, and human and otherwise. So that's one area of, of big interest. Um, I think it's hard these days to ignore mobile. <laughs> so right. there's uh, tremendous mobile opportunities uh, right now, especially when you consider, you know, let's say it was recently in, in India and they had, uh, you know, more households have mobile phones than actually have, uh, you know, running water or working toilets. So you start to recognize that if you're going to start teaching uh, or educating the next billion people, which won't be based in, in you know, North America or even Europe. They're going to come from regions like Africa and, and uh, India and China and uh, South America. So those learners will likely be educated in a very different approach and, and will probably have a significant mobile component. There's a few trends that I, I haven't really gotten 100% behind, but I'm sort of peripherally uh, aware of what's going on, and that's definitely the the gamification uh, of education and uh, the interest in badges or alternative accrediting or techniques or uh, evaluation assessment means. Um, and one thing when I look at, you know, you look at the range of teaching and learning and training and development, uh, there's a lot of innovation points, if you will, that are coming up, and, and these are points that are potentially going to change how we do our uh, education, our training and development. And so some of these these points, obviously, one innovation point is technology, and it's really altering a lot of how we're interacting with one another. Another innovation point is openness. So that's definitely beginning to impact, at least in higher education. I think it has a different influence in corporate sectors. Uh, but, you know, and then I've already touched on a few other points, you know, the gamification and the mobile devices, which technically are technical, or the mobile at least is a technical development as well. But one area that I'm finding right now, I'm, I'm uh, gaining a lot and have over the last year been paying a lot more attention to is the startup ecosystem around education. And I think that's right now one of the more promising innovation points in terms of uh, just the sheer number of new tools and products and approaches that are being made available for, for delivering content, for evaluating, for assessing, for interacting, for teaching, the list goes on. So I think that's, you know, I would say, you know, a few of those probably analytics and the um, um, the development of the mobile or, or the development of the startup ecosystem around learning and training are areas that I find those two at least would be the ones that most capture my interest. Well, great. Well, there's, uh, I think, little disagreement that we certainly live in interesting times right now from the standpoint of learning, education, and, and technology. Uh, George, thanks so much for, for taking some time to talk today. I really appreciate it. All right. Sounds great. That wraps up my interview with George Siemens. You can find George on the web at www.elearnspace.org where you can subscribe to get blog updates. I've also included a number of other links related to George in our discussion in the show notes for this episode. So just go to learningrevolution.net slash episode six to get those. As always, I am truly grateful for you taking the time to join me here on Learning Revolution. If you enjoy the podcast, I'd be really thankful if you would share it with others. One easy way to do that is to simply go to www.learningrevolution.net slash share. 
and that will auto magically generate a tweet that you can send out uh, to share the, the podcast with others. Also, please consider going to iTunes and doing a brief review or even just clicking quickly on the, the stars to, to rate the show. Uh, you can get there by going to learningrevolution.net slash iTunes. That's it for this show. This is Jeff Cobb signing off from the revolution. <laughs>